Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You do this to me every time, but I love you anyways, Mr. <laughs> Daly. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, Mr. <laughs> Daly points to me at the very last second and says, intro the podcast. So here I am, my friend. It's been a crazy news week. I'm not even talking about F1. Wow. We're here to talk about F1. Yeah, just in general. But I promise everyone at home, as much as the news reel is crazy everywhere, we promise to talk about Formula One today. And we are on the Mm -hmm. cusp of the Australian Grand Prix. But before we get there, our normal, traditional weekly banter, my friend, how the heck are you? Very good. But just like you said, the newsreel is crazy this week. This has also been an insanely crazy, busy week. And, and that's been on top of a couple of days. I've actually been able to work from home, which is completely out of the norm. And even then, without having to worry about the commute to the to the office a couple of days here, I feel like I've just been running from one thing to another, to another, to another. Next week's going to be even worse, apparently. So I don't know. If, is there ever anything like any end in sight? But at least there's a Grand Prix to look forward to this weekend. So that's what I'm, I'm focused on in the short term anyways. And the weather was great this week. It felt I know. warm. Yep. I, I, I had a basketball game tonight, so I, I'm feeling better after my spell a couple of weeks ago. So I was back on the competitive basketball court tonight. I actually nice. came to this podcast straight. Nice. I'm awfully sweaty, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get completely shown up, but it was it was good. And I'll just share one of my little pet peeves. And I have lots of pet peeves, but it's not cool if you're on the basketball court and you're wearing Nike shoes and an Under Armour t-shirt or an Adidas <laughs> t-shirt and Converse shoes. You gotta match. You gotta pair it all together. It's part of the it's part of the culture of playing basketball. And the people I played tonight were lovely. They were better than I am, but I just gotta call that out. <laughs> okay, so well, all I know is that there's like two things in your closet, like Nike and Lululemon. So did that's you... it? You know me so well. <laughs> those those are my those are my jams. Those okay. are my jams. Okay, well, I, I guess like Nike, just you know, the fact that's like really kind of like you know, it just doesn't doesn't go with like Lululemon. I, I've never actually seen somebody like mix and match Nike and Lululemon. I guess it's been done, but who knows? Maybe you can like do that. Lululemon's producing shoes now. So you could wow. be head to toe Lulu. Boxer, shorts, shoes, hoodie, t-shirt. Yeah, you can be head to toe Lulu. <laughs> it's kind of the right dream. On. It's the dream. Absolutely. Hey, so do you want to uh, do? You, do you want to risk like pulling up the fantasy league here because we got no, a Grand Prix weekend? I'm not, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna risk bringing it up. You know what? <laughs> to be fair, our our listeners heard it last Thursday and they heard it again Monday. And if you, if you if you don't know what Daly's talking about, is that every single year last year when we'd record the podcast, we'd go to bring up fantasy and we couldn't bring it up. 
Daily, are, are you bringing it up right now? Is that what you're looking at? Are no, you I'm not. I'm just no, no. I, I'm not risking it either. I'm just uh, taking my my phone here just to check. Just check in the background, put it down so it can charge here while we're, we're while we're talking. But no, I'm not going to risk it. Other than uh, than just a reminder that we got a race this weekend. So set your you lineup. Need to, yeah, set your lineup. Get in on that because that window is going to close. And uh, we've seen some movement through the first couple of races Definitely. of the weekend. So. Kind of excited to see how this one turns out, both obviously on the track and also on the track with uh, with fantasy, and see if after a very disappointing opening round for my fantasy team, whether I can keep climbing up and moving through the race order here, or if it's just going to kind of be middle of the pack, you know, best of the rest for the for from from here on out. Also, daily, daily. Oh, sorry. We have go breaking ahead, go news. Ahead. We have breaking news right now. The FIA has. As we're talking, the FIA has issued clarification over the pit stop penalty rules after the Alonzo drama in Saudi Arabia. So I'm, okay. just, I'm just pulling this up. as So this wasn't on the outline. This is just coming to me as we talk right now. So I'm pulling this up. Let's see here. Following a meeting of the Sporting Advisory Committee and confirmation from the FIA that a clarification would be on the way, a sporting director was issued to teams in Australia to clear up the matter. And of course, this goes back to the fact that Alonzo was issued a 10-second penalty because they touched his car with a jack, which constitutes working on the car. Article 54.4 of the Sporting Regulation states that whilst the car is stationary, the pit lane in the pit lane as a result of incurring a penalty in accordance with articles 54.3a or 54.3b, it may not be worked on until the car has been stationary for the duration of the penalty. But the directive sent out by the FIA single-seater sporting director Steve Nielsen noted, for clarity and until further noticed, in this context, the physical touching of the car or driver by hand, tools, or equipment including the front and rear jacks during any such penalty will all be considered to constitute work. The use of cooling fans during a penalty is permitted, providing any such fan does not physically touch the car. So this is big. So we talked last week about the fact that this rule had kind of been adjudicated in the spirit of how teams generally as a consensus understood it. But as soon as it kind of ran afoul of Aston Martin last week, they challenged it and the wording wasn't specific tactical uh, legalese enough to to hold to hold water. So they've gone back and they've addressed it and it is now crystal clear. You do not touch that car. You do not breathe that car until the penalty is over. Then you can slide the jacks under it and do whatever you want. Loophole closed. Love it. And I was just Love thinking it. here too, when when you first brought that up, I thought uh, that you were just kind of like joking and you had some sort of, I don't know, kind of like a made up story or kind of like a sarcastic or Are funny you or witty comment. that's my shtick is making stuff up? No, no, but I just, I, honestly, I wasn't expecting it because we're sitting here now. It is 9.30 p.m. Pacific time, Thursday night. I'm like, why wouldn't news like this be breaking at this time? But then as you were talking, like, like I got my phone right beside me. So I just checked it out. So it's currently 3.30 in the afternoon, Friday afternoon <laughs> there you go. In, in Melbourne. So while here on the West Coast and as, you know, the land that from time forgot, at least from the, uh, the, the <laughs> you know, time zone point of view, we're still kind of thinking that the early least I am that uh, the the race and the start of the race weekend free practice and everything's still a little bit away but I mean they're already well and truly into the first day of the Grand Prix weekend down in Melbourne so this is actually very timely but I'm just glad that uh, they've they've uh, clarified that you know touching by hand by tool by equipment just close all those loopholes and and well so they hopefully we can have like a 
an event free or controversy free race I weekend. I totally but, agree. Totally but, agree. It's what we all want. I know, but maybe they'll find something else to screw up. So (laughs) I'm extremely skeptical. But the one thing I'm not skeptical about is our good friend, uh, Tis Roadhart over at RacingExclusive.com, who uh, has provided us this awesome autograph Max Verstappen helmet that we're going to give away at the end of the year for the winner of our Scuderia F1 Fantasy League. Big shout out to T, so you can go check out his uh, website, racingexclusives.com. Everything that he has comes with a COA, Certificate of Authenticity, so you know it is the real deal. He's got lots of great stuff up on his site, so go check it out, racingexclusives.com. Also, go check out the theraceweekend.com. Magnus and his crew do a wonderful job. We love the Race Weekend magazine. If you use our promo code, the, uh, sorry, ScuderiaPod at checkout, you'll save 10%, and you get that several times a year, and as we talk about all the time we just don't promote these guys because they just kind of came up and said hey here's something we you know we love what magnus is doing love what tisa is doing that's why we like to support them just like they're supporting us and you can check out uh, the race weekend magazine at the raceweekend.com and race weekend is spelled spelled r-a-c-e-w-k-n-d.com now hammy i totally spaced on this i did not know that max verstappen had a documentary coming out so it's called anatomy of a champion where is it why where can i watch it and why did i not know about it is this a me thing it must be a me thing i'm just assuming it usually is so yeah it it is it is funny because this one seemed and and maybe it's because you and i have been so clouded and busy with all these other kind of things but this one kind of seemed to sneak up on on me as well and Mm -hmm. i'm excited for this one particularly because i'm really intrigued to learn more about Max's upbringing and and I I haven't seen it yet and I'll, I'll kind of share some of the details in a couple of minutes in terms of where you can find it and where you can watch it and things like that but I'm I'm really intrigued to see whether they dive into his upbringing and and how transparent and and how authentic they're going to be with that experience because I don't think Max had a a normal upbringing and for starters, he grew up in the F1 paddock, right? That when he was a child, mm-hmm. his father was a Formula One driver. So right away, it's different than the upbringing that a lot of a lot of youngsters and a lot of Formula One drivers have. But the three-part series, I hope, is going to do a really good job of speaking to that experience. That one, he was in the paddock, but furthermore, we all know his father was ruthlessly, ruthlessly aggressive with, I think, some of the people in his life with his personal relationships. And I I think, and I also believe with Max, and I think his upbringing shaped not only who he is in the car, but who he is outside of the car. And I'm hoping that we're going to learn a lot more about what shaped him as a a human being. And I just, I hope they're going to be authentic and I hope they're going to dive into that. Um, All of that to say, three-part series is being produced by Via Play. And I'm trying to find the details for the North American release now. And if I can't find it, I'll certainly share it later. Uh, But Mm -hmm. by all accounts, for people that have had the opportunity to see some sneak peeks and things like that, it is extremely, extremely well done. Yeah, that's cool. I really can't wait to check this one out because I think there'll be some really cool tie-ins because at risk of dating myself and revealing that, in fact, I'm a sad old man, is the fact that when I was living in Holland is when when Jos, Max's dad, was racing in Formula 1 about 20 years ago uh, for for, um, Orange Arrows or Tom Walkinshaw Racing. Those cars are pretty cool, Hammy, if you remember. Predominantly black with like the the orange uh, livery on it. A really, really sharp-looking car. And it's really kind of interesting, too, when you see like... I, I guess that you know age changes you a little bit, but I don't know. I, I mean, I always remember Jos Verstappen being quite you know serious about being a Formula One driver, but 
I don't, I, I don't know. I'd have to go back. I guess that, uh, that, uh, time is, and you know, a lot of time has passed since he was in the sport, but I didn't really get the end, you know, the impression way back in the day that he was like a super intense, like really, you know, like, um, you know, like we've talked about before, just this really, really intense guy, right? Uh, I always kind of felt like he had a bit of a lighthearted side to it. So I'd have to go back. And that's why I'd love to see the tie in because, you know, back in the day, I mean, Yoss was a huge, huge sporting figure in, in the Netherlands. And he was racing for the equivalent of Haas or Alfa Romeo or Williams. I mean, let, let's be fair there. I mean, he wasn't racing for, for the greatest team. I mean, he did what he, he, he could. I mean, he's a very capable, very good uh, Formula One driver, but he's not Max. And I think it was funny too. I remember a number of years ago now, I think it was just before Max was coming into Formula One, or sort of like, you know, just sort of he, before he got that first deal with the uh, Toro Rosso. And I remember reading an interview or seeing an interview somewhere with, with Yoss and uh, somebody, uh, you know, the, 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 the person that was interviewing said, uh, sir, asked uh, Yoss something to the facts is, uh, you know, is, is he as quick as you are? And Yoss, he, he flat out said, no, he's, he's quicker than I ever was. Wow. You know, he said, yeah, you know, he, Put put me and Max in the same car. Both of you, know, sort of, we can sort of take away like uh, the, you know, like like age. Put me in the car at the same age he is now, in the same car, whatever. Max would be quicker than than, than I am. He said, "There's there's no doubt about it that Max is a far better Formula One driver than I ever was." And I thought that was uh, very very interesting. So much like yourself, it'd be interesting to see how much we get sort of like behind the scenes, and especially some of that. You know, archival Verstappen family footage, which I yeah. guess would have been shot on Handycam back in the day. <laughs> I mean, he's not that old, man. He's, 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 ah, yeah, maybe you're right. Probably high eight digital DV, something like that. Probably, Probably would have been cell phone footage of his child, but pretty close. And to put a pin in this, so I, I pulled it up in the background. This is a Via Play exclusive. Via Play is a streaming service that is available in the following countries Nordic countries, Baltic countries, Poland, the United States, Canada, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. So if you are interested in checking this out legally, and obviously we only promote accessing legal services on this podcast, if you want to check it out, head to viaplay.com, subscribe, and you'll be able to check it out. And I think it drops in a couple of days. I think maybe the second it'll go live, and it's a three-part series. Via Play, I dude, I've never heard of it, and I guess that's not really too surprising because there's so many premium streaming services out there. I mean, n- not just for things like you know, like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Paramount, etc. But I mean, just all like the the premium like sporting platforms. I mean, what do we, you we subscribe talking- to today? Take me so through the I list because su- it's probably a ton. Oh, well, there would be, uh, well, Netflix, Amazon, um, Disney Plus we have as well. Um, I've got Flow Sports, GCN, which is, a, the, and those are both the cycling ones, uh, F1 TV Pro. Um, the other one, Apple Music is one, but I mean, that's that's more music that's than fair. anything. That's but, you know, that, that still rents me about 11, 12 bucks a month. So it kind of like adds up. I mean, the thing is that, you know, we got the, the, the Rugby World Cup coming up in the fall. I love rugby. Love soccer, and the thing is, I'm already spending a you know a pile on the premium cycling ones, and boy oh boy, I mean you kind of look and it's just like oh it doesn't sound that much. It's like twenty five bucks a month for like the soccer, and then like the rugby, but that's an extra fifty bucks a month, and multiply that by over the course of a year, it's just like 
you got to pick and choose. And that's why I've almost like tuned it out. So, I mean, that's probably why I didn't know like the, the, the max one was going to drop I, and, you know, via sport doesn't ring a bell for me. It's just like at some point, you know, it's just, it's, it's way too much to kind of keep up on top of these ones. It's just like you sign up for the seven day trial or the 14 day trial or the 30 day trial or whatever it is. And then cancel that, that, that thing as soon as you, oh, before dude. you hit that. Or, or you do yeah. the Hamilton, which is you subscribe and then forget and pay for it for two years before you realize you're still subscribed <laughs> to Paramount Plus. So oh, we are. That's that's not a Hamilton thing. I've done that uh, totally, as well. Totally. I, mean, I think we all have. I think we're, we all have. We're Netflix, Prime, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, because I can't figure out how to unsubscribe from it. Uh, YouTube Premium. <laughs> YouTube Premium gets oh, yeah, a ton yeah. of use in our house. Absolutely. Um, so what do you use YouTube Premium for? I, I'm I'm interested in that because I've just never... Just ad-free. Just ad-free Just ad-free? Okay. Yeah. Like my Fair. son loves Fair. YouTube. I watch a ton of YouTube. I listen to a lot of music from YouTube. And not sure. having the advertisements is just... I couldn't... I couldn't I couldn't do YouTube without, uh, or I couldn't do YouTube with commercials. Now it's just, hmm. just the amount of commercials. The fact that they inject commercials into a specific, like into Ugh. a video, like you'll get the counter, like commercials coming up in three, two, one, and you get five commercials. Oh, like that. it's, it's unwatchable. So yeah, we pay I think twenty dollars or twenty five dollars Canadian for YouTube Premium, but we watch an awful lot of it. My son especially because he's obsessed with a bunch of YouTube vloggers. But yeah, we're paying a lot for monthly subscriptions, my friend. All right, interesting. Oh, and of course, F1 right. TV Pro. We both forgot F1 TV Pro. No, I threw it in there. It just oh, like you? with all the list of, uh, yeah. of of everything else, it just kind of slipped uh, slipped by there. Okay, the couple interesting uh, graphics uh, here that uh, you've uh, pulled up, uh, Mark. So race time gained, uh, Jetta 2022 versus Jetta 2023. W- sorry, 3.14 seconds in a, a time increase, a positive delta for Aston Martin. That is incredible. So Williams inc- uh, improved by almost a second and a quarter. Alfa Romeo, 1.2 seconds. Alpine, 1.15 seconds. Mercedes improved a second, which is pretty impressive. Um, Alfa Tauri, 0.92 seconds. Red Bull, under a second, only 0.91. And then you have McLaren at 0.7. And then Haas at 0.66. And Ferrari, basically exactly the same. They were actually, well, actually, I should uh, correct myself. Um, they were only 0.01 second. I mean, that is, that's crazy crazy you know very very almost identical time but i mean that's positive delta for aston martin hammy three seconds that is that's mind-blowing dude yeah it's it's a question really of whether they ah, i'm trying to think about the right way to put this because i'm excited aston martin's awesome fernando alonso fantastic story it's going to carry us all year but it either speaks to the fact and it's probably somewhere in between that either they were in a really bad place in the offseason or they just made some exponential strides over the last 12 months. It is probably somewhere in between. That last year's car was wholly disappointing and that they've yeah. dug themselves out of that hole and they put themselves in a position where they can reliably contend for podiums every single weekend. So all the credit to them to be able to, to turn that deficit around and pick up three seconds per lap is phenomenal. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny though, like Red Bull hasn't I mean, still almost a second is is impressive in and of itself, but I mean, they're sort of like two thirds or three quarters of the there way is, down that list. There is yeah. a caveat to Red Bull, my friend, and we talked yeah, about this yeah. on the spaces tonight. If you are Red Bull and you are already winning races by 20, 30, 40 seconds, you are not uncorking that power unit. We have <laughs> no idea what that car is really capable of. And why would right? you show your cards and force and force the hands of the FIA to start instituting regulations to kind of bring the pack closer bring the pack closer together again i don't think we really know what that red bull is even capable of yet and we won't until somebody can get into their backyard performance wise yeah that's a great uh, great point mark and also you know why why would you risk you know stressing the equipment and the it, machinery exactly more than you need exactly to, right? yeah 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 okay cool uh move on to another one before we dive into some of the news stories here most races without a win in formula one leading the way andrea de cesaris 208 races nick heidfeld 183 in third place there's two guys that are currently on this list that are in formula one so number three all-time uh, races without a win in formula one nico hulkenberg all also on 183 races. Uh, Roman Grosjean was 179. Martin Brundle, that's a name we're all f- familiar with, 158. Derek Warwick, 146. Were Brundle and Warwick teammates back in the day? I feel like they were. I have to go and check. Um, Kevin Magnuson, K-Mag, has raced 143 Grand Prix without a win. Um, then we have J.P. Harrier with uh, 100, or Jarrier, I guess I should say, 134. Eddie Cheever, the American, 132. And then Adrian Sutil, uh, 128 races. So that's uh, interesting. That's uh, a graphic that comes courtesy of motorsport.com okay a little bit of a teaser here it's uh we're running well about on schedule let's uh, jump away quickly for a break we'll come back and we'll try and get inside the mind of a formula one ceo andrea sorry stefano dominicali we'll do that in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I'm going to handle this one without fumbling over to Mark and catching him by surprise like I do every once in a while. I thought you would have been used to that by now, but I should have known. I, just... I should have known. I love when you do that. I'm just like, like go, go, and I'm like, yeah. okay, wow. I love, I love the reaction. I love the reaction. Yeah, the thing is, I like to, you know, sometimes the spontaneity is fun, right? And yeah. uh, you know, we can have it completely scripted and stuff. And hey, if we can't laugh at ourselves, who can we laugh at? But and I don't know. Our, our listeners our, know, sorry. right, that this, I think you use the term live to tape or is yes, that the term? Yes, yes. Like, that's correct. There are Live no second takes on this podcast. What you hear is literally the conversation yep. as it's as it happens. 
You know, it's really interesting, Mark. Like, uh, both you and I are very big consumers of podcasts, not just Formula One, but, uh, you know, I listen to news and true crime and current affairs, all sorts of different things. And I, I literally start to run out of time in the day to to kind of get through my, my playlist. But it's really interesting when you go through some of the long form kind of podcasts, you can tell some of the ones that uh, that are are scripted like i've i've noticed having you know done you know several hundred podcast episodes over the past 10 years crazily enough that it's funny that i, I listen to it's like after a while it's like just over after you know just doesn't even take all that long I'm like i'm pretty sure that they're reading off of a script but i mean when it comes to kind of like a long form kind of like a docu series kind of thing it kind of makes sense to do so rather than kind of have like the inane chit chat that we're probably well known for on the, on this podcast anyways is this inane chit chat i'm not sure we'll find out but stefano mm-hmm. uh, Cali, formula uh, ceo has uh, made some comments and suggested that he was looking at scrapping friday practice sessions at uh, races and dude I, dude, I don't like this for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, we're down to basically no time for the drivers to test these cars at the beginning of the season. I mean, we went from basically unlimited testing back in the day where they, they literally had a parallel testing program to the race program where they were you know you know had the car on the test track all the time and you know evolving that way to now where it's Basically, they get what a day and a half, two days, one day. I can't even remember now. It's basically you show up and it, it, it's over, done with before you know it. But now suggesting that they cancel Friday practices as well, I think, is not great for the drivers and the teams to really, you know, dial the cars in and get real worlds and get real track feedback. But also for the fans, I mean, geez, I mean, you're spending a fortune now. I mean, we were complaining about it just a couple of weeks ago that it's pretty much become, you know, a little bit beyond our means to go to the races that we really want to go to, right? And some of them were just out of our means altogether. But I mean, if, if I'm spending several hundred dollars per ticket for a race weekend, I don't want to, from from a fan, you know, be denied. I, I mean, sure, testing or sorry, Friday practice is one thing, but you're still getting to watch the cars out on the track. It might not be a sprint race. It might not be qualifying. It might not be the race itself. But that's that's what you do. You go to the track. You go there, sit there with the other fans. You go to soak up the vibe and watch the cars. And I don't know. I, I don't know if this is just kind of you know, throwing something at the wall and see if something will stick. But I just don't like this one at all, Mark. The context is pretty important for this. So the comment, the exact quote was, I am a supporter of the cancellation of free practice sessions, which are of great use to the engineers, but that the public doesn't like. And the the framework or the the location of that comment is important because he was in Portimao. He was at the opener of the MotoGP season and MotoGP has reshaped their weekends this year. So typically on a MotoGP weekend, they have four practice sessions. They're much shorter, but four practice sessions qualifying the Grand Prix. This year, they've killed free practice four and they've introduced a sprint race at every single weekend, which is Hugely overkill. And if you heard us last weekend, I think it's going to be hugely problematic yeah. and a yeah. huge grind yeah. to to the rider. So he was asked this question in the, in the shadow of 
of that Grand Prix and in the shadow of being at a MotoGP event. I think I agree with everything that you say that I think to deprive fans of the value of being able to see Formula One cars on track during the practice sessions is a huge disservice to fans considering they're paying more than they ever have before. It's a disservice to the engineers who desperately, desperately need the data from practice sessions to inform the decisions they make about the development of the car. And it's also hugely problematic for the drivers. And I heard somebody make this comment the other day, but drivers are just stacked with obligations that aren't training for a race weekend. It's sponsorship obligations and fan obligations and media obligations that for them to get into a Formula One car is almost a a break. It's it's a it's a vacation from all of these other obligations they have, and then all of a sudden the drivers lose that. It'll probably be backfilled with more media obligations. They lose that, and then they're far less familiar with the track because this isn't Formula One in the '90s where you're driving on a bunch of dedicated circuits and you could fly your team out there and race on it at any time of year. With all of the testing restrictions, with the exception maybe of Silverstone and Bahrain, you don't see any of these tracks until you get there for the Grand Prix weekend. Like the driver need that time. And again, Friday free practice sessions used to be 90 minutes. And then two years ago, they sliced them down to 60 minutes. So like you said, they get less preseason testing, they get less practice time. And now there's this conversation. And I think ultimately the crux of this is Stefano is looking at injecting more value, quote unquote, value into the weekend. And that might be with events that are point generating. So maybe more sprint races, sprint races every weekend. And this is me thinking, not what he said, but ultimately yeah. he would want to discard free practice in in exchange for something that delivers potentially more value to, to the sport. Yeah, I, I just don't know what that would actually be right, Mark, because I mean, we sat here a couple of years ago, you and I, really excited about the prospect of uh, sprint races. And, you know, to me, and I, I'm pretty sure you still feel the same way as well, that it hasn't really delivered what we were kind of like hoping for, because we've had some good you know, sprint races. And I, I don't know if it just needs time to really germinate. But I mean, they've been around for for two years now. And I don't really know what sort of value that they've they've brought to Formula One. I, I, I'll go down and watch them, but I don't really I don't really get as excited for them now as I did before they were, were were introduced. And then there was that whole debacle of that sort of rolling cutoff time that they experimented with. When was it about 2015-ish or so, where they kind of had that rolling cutoff time rather than Q1, Q2, and Q3, which they ditched after like literally two or, or three races. So would i hear those those comments that you know or or discussions that you know scrap it in favor of something point generating sure but what would it be i mean it is only a like a 60 minute practice session after all that's not really a lot of time i mean that's like that that's what we spend like maybe commuting to and from work or some people get that for lunch break so you know it's it's not like it's like the entire day from 8 a.m till 4 p.m that they're in the car i mean 60 minutes comes and goes pretty quick and if they don't get a chance to like you say get that 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 opportunity to to dive into the data and everything like that I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not a big fan, but uh, we'll see what uh, what happens. So the next one, FIS clamped down on pit wall celebration. Mark, what is all that all about? Is that like the no fun police showing up? Uh, is this, uh, you know, is 
you know, no, no more parties, like no fun city coming to reality here. I mean, fill me in. Yeah. And this one seemed to come out of nowhere that typically a regulation or a rule change like this is in response to a, a safety incident. And the the visuals, the photographs, the video of a team climbing up the fence, uh, the catch fence near the paddock is is just a staple of F1. We've seen it time and time again, where the mechanics and the engineers and and everyone that is supporting the team at a race weekend, they climb the fence and they 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 raise their fist and they cheer on their hero, their driver as they cross the line and score a podium finish. Well, that is effectively ending immediately that that visual that that image that romantic notion of celebrating a grand prix victory is done forever and it quote unquote according to motorsport.com follows a situation last time out in Jeddah where team personnel from red bull and aston martin were spotted climbing to the top of the lattice metal debris fencing that lines the saudi arabian street track and is in most places that venues f1 visits as they respectively celebrated sergio perez max and fernando securing the podium finish team staff were also spotted climbing to the top of the pit wall debris vents and leaning over the track in the bahrain season opener scenes that are not uncommon in f1 the new enforcement development began in melbourne with the release of f1 race director niels wittage's pre-weekend event safety notes which included the line it is forbidden to climb on pit wall debris fence at any time and referenced Appendix H Article 232 of the FIA's International Sporting Code, rules that are enforced across the motorsport category sanctioned by the governing body. Part of the rule that covers this particular situation regarding climbing pit wall fences states that team personnel are only allowed in the pit lane immediately before they were required to work on a car and must withdraw as soon as the work is complete. It continues. It is forbidden for personnel to climb on pit wall debris fences at any time any action by a team breaching this ban will be reported to the steward so it's over there will be no more celebrating from the catch fence opposite the paddocks opposite the garages sorry uh dude i don't know it just uh, uh i i guess it's obviously a safety thing but that seems like a little bit uh disappointing to hear it just seems that yeah Whatever. I, I'm, I'm not going to say, I don't want to just get up on my high horse about this one. It's, but that just, it's a tough that thing though, right? Like, like yeah, after yeah. Abu Dhabi, all we could ask for is, you know what, enforce the rules, call the rules, be be consistent. And in this case, the FIA is, they're, they're being consistent and it's in the spirit of safety, but it just, yeah. And maybe it's one of those things where you rewrite the rules that after the second to last lap, the team who's leading can have their team members climb the safety fence and cheer on. But I get it from a safety perspective, but it's just, it's such a romantic part of F1 and the celebration of a, of a victory. Yeah, I guess maybe they'll have like some sort of pre-recorded celebration that they can throw up on the big screen exactly. on the <laughs> exactly. late or something. Not quite uh, the, the the same. Anyways, uh, next story. So Franz Toss, team principal at Alpha Tauri, has hinted that his retirement is near. He's uh, or is near. He's sixty seven years old, and uh, so he says he wants to go back to his native Austria before he turns seventy and uh, do things like skiing. And uh, he like he said, among other things, he hasn't been able to go skiing for for at least three years. So. He says that's uh, ski season, also the busiest time of year in Formula One. So France obviously is uh, looking towards uh, retirement there. So that uh, would be interesting to see what uh, they would do. Uh, well, um, Toro Rosso or Red Bull, if, if and when, well, actually when that happens uh, and who they would install there. Okay, so next story. Um 
Okay, I think I'm a little bit out of order here. Let me jump in. Let me jump in because I'm I'm amped about this one. So the the crux of this one is that TD39, Technical Directive 39, has been repealed by the FIA. And Technical Directive 39 was instituted last year because the teams couldn't manage themselves, manage their way out of the Pandora's box that was porpoising. And of course, they introduced some rule changes in the offseason that n- effectively negate the need oh, for TD39. Right, right. But this is a bigger this is a bigger issue and I wanted to kind of reference a couple of pieces here. So, prior to the season, formula1.com published this. Amongst all of the changes for F1 in 2023, one of them was this, quote unquote, ride height and diffusers adjusted with some teams encountering porpoising upon the arrival of F1's new spec cars last year, which feature ground effects aerodynamics, a set of floor-based flexibility and monitoring measures arrived for the second half of the 2022 season, which was TD39. And more have been outlined for 2023. In short, four additional changes will come into play this year. Floor edges have been raised by 15 millimeters. The diffuser throat height has been raised. The diffuser edge stiffness has been increased, and an additional sensor has been mandated to more effectively monitor the porpoising phenomenon. And of course, if you listen to this podcast or you consumed any F1 content last year, you know that porpoise was a dominant storyline last year, a dominant storyline. We could see it. We heard the drivers complain about it. We heard a lot of the team principals, especially Total Wolf, complaining about how much damage it was causing to their drivers. And of course, porpoising was that effect where the cars were sitting extremely low and they need to sit low because the underbody ground effects that generate the downforce need to be close to the ground. But effectively, the cars were being sucked close, so close to the ground that that downforce was being broken and the cars would pop up. So they go down, they get sucked down, it would break the suction, they pop up, down, up, down, up, down, up. So it was a really, really, really bad experience for all of the drivers, and it wasn't a good look for the sport. Now, of course, the reason we under introduced underbody ground effects last year was because we wanted to reduce the dirty wake that gets spun up behind the car. So cars have typically, because they haven't been able to generate any downforce from the body, underbody of the car, they've been creating all of their downforce by the aerodynamic surfaces on the top of the car. So last year, F1 basically said, look, can't trust the teams to figure out this porpoising thing. It is a safety issue for the drivers and it's potentially a safety issue when it comes to handling, especially in corners and things like that. We're just going to mandate that they raise the cars. So they mandated that the teams raise the car, like I said, that that threshold. And the problem now is that they've solved the porpoising issue. So they've raised the car, they fixed the porpoising issue. But unfortunately, the cars aren't generating as much downforce because the underbody ground effects aren't working as well. So now all of a sudden, the teams are adding all sorts of additional slots and mechanics to the sides of the floor and to the top of the cars. And all of a sudden, the cars are spilling out all this outwash again. So the whole benefit of having that downforce generating on the bottom of the car has been negated because they've had to raise the cars. So all of a sudden, it's possibly just as difficult now to follow as it was in 2021. So the whole impetus behind the aerodynamic reworking of these cars has been broken. And there was a quote here from George Russell in in Saudi Arabia. Um, Sorry, Charles Leclerc admitted, I could have gone a bit faster, but when I was closer than a second to Carlos, you felt the turbulence of the car in front of you. Max Verstappen spoke of an effect that felt like a tailwind. He says, at high speeds, the turbulent air circulates through the concrete channel. 
Carlos signs behind Lawrence Stoll felt how much the dirty air made it difficult to get behind. And these are quotes here from a translated article from AM. US. But ultimately, the fear here is that the sport has solved porpoising, but they've undermined all the efforts to negate that dirty air that had been spilling off the back of the cars for an eternity. And it's back. And it's back in part because the teams have countered the downforce that they've lost on the underside of the car by creating all these additional small fins on the front wing. They've been adding cutouts to the end panels, and they've been doing all these other things that are creating all this outwash. So all of a sudden, we might be back to where we were in 2021. And AMUS makes a really great point here is that one overtakes in Bahrain were down significantly this year versus last year. Overtakes in Saudi Arabia were down from 38 in 2022 to 33 in 2023. And that number is actually a lot more generous than it should be because Max and Charles started so far back and had the opportunity to overtake so many people. But if they'd started at the front of the grid, that could have been, what, 15 overtakes? So half as many overtakes as the year before. And one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence here is, and I'm quoting here from AMUS, Russell, Lewis, Carlos, Charles, Esteban, and Pierre Gasly circled the circuit within two seconds of each other for 20 laps. None of the pursuers came anywhere near the DRS area. Leclerc, like I said, later admitting, I could have gone a bit faster, but when I was closer than a second to Carlos, you could feel the turbulence of the car in front of you. The dirty air is back. It's not a great place. No, it's not. I mean, it's a, it's disappointing and frustrating to hear that because we we all felt like at the end of 2021 that this was going to disappear forever. We're going to see a new era of Formula One. There's going to be more overtaking. There's going to be closer uh, racing. Drivers are going to be fighting and defending for position more. It was going to be like this golden age is kind of the way that it had been kind of like uh, pitched to us and the way that we were kind of like really expecting, you know, this to, you know, like the, the new era, the new regs to go, right? And so, you know, sad that uh, we're, we're kind of here right now, but w- where do we go, Mark? It's just like, it's, I, I don't know. It's it's frustrating to hear that. You make a great point, too, that if it wasn't for Max and Charles, and as, a, as a frustrating as it was for them to have to start further back than where they normally would on a Grand Prix for the, the, the various issues that they had, you, you're you're right. I mean, what was like 30 overtakes, they probably combined for at least a dozen or 15 combined, right? So uh, yeah. I, don't, I, I don't know. It's and a, just, story, um, a story we have later in the, in the podcast as well, and we can just skip to it and then we can forget about it later. But there's a, a story we had in the yeah. outline later that's related, which is DRS is a necessity for F1 with 2023 machines. It is more difficult to overtake. And that's an article from Formula One Uno and I, out of, I think, Italy. But again, you and I were talking the last couple of years ago, but like, hey, we're going to be able to phase this thing out. And we talked last year about the fact that DRS has always been designed as an equalizer. It's it's not so much a gimmick, not like push to pass or the fan boost yeah, in Formula yeah. E. It was designed as a mechanism to equalize performance because if you're following a car in front of you, all that dirty air put you at a disadvantage. So DRS was just designed to compensate for that dirty air. And then last year, DRS became, and this isn't my word, I'm stealing it from somebody else. It was less an equalizer and it became a weapon. So you could follow somebody and Mm -hmm. then you had this tool at your disposal in DRS. Now DRS is relegated to simply being that equalizer again. And we're probably no closer to losing DRS than we ever have been before. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the thing too. But excuse me, I was just kind of thinking as well, Mark, that when 
and I, I guess maybe it's just sort of like a you know an, a natural artifact from from COVID. But remember, I mean, these cars were already we were supposed to be like three years into this uh, this this experiment, Great point. right? But Great it was point. delayed a year because of like COVID. We all kind of thought, well, maybe because of the extra year that uh, because of the pandemic will give them the time to to really figure them out. And what we'll see when these cars hit the track will be an even better product than what we were expecting because it it was going to be tight to introduce it in twenty one COVID or not. It's just the fact that when the pandemic started and everybody the world basically sat at home for many 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 months and the same thing went for formula one as well in the spring of 2020 nobody was going anywhere this time three years ago so it didn't take them too long before they decided hey you know what this was going to be we were going to get through this and introduce these new cars by the skin of our teeth as it was so we're going to delay it for a year and i think that we we all had big hopes because of that that the that the cars when they did finally get introduced in 2022 were just going to be i guess more refined more dialed in that maybe more that the reality be more i i guess closer to the 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 theory but i guess obviously it hasn't worked out that way anyhow the, i'll leave this uh, story on this note just again from sure. AWS because i think this is a perfect way to wrap up this topic but quote unquote many teams reinforce the outflash effect with small fins and wings on the edge of the underbody like red bull in this picture which obviously we can't see should the fia intervene the new underbody rule may be an own goal it postpones the point at which bouncing begins but it also encouraged engineers to add all sorts of slots wings and strips to the edges of the underbody to minif- minimize downforce loss from the 15 millimeter rise this mitigates bouncing by compensating for large pressure differences at the edges by forcing air outward. If the trend continues and drivers continue to complain that they're feeling the turbulence of the car ahead more strongly again, the FIA could take corrective action. The easiest way would be to extend the DRS zones, but that only combats the symptoms and is not a cure. The regulations were designed to make it easier to drive the cars in traffic over the long term. One could see an intervention in the technology as a way to curb the Red Bull superiority. The only problem is the justification. While it is a high goal of F1 to improve the quality of the duels as long as there's no safety risk it will be difficult to change the rules ad hoc again from amus hmm. yeah yeah it makes sense all right let's move on to the next story and james voles the team principal at williams said that the team has a spark after a couple of promising outings to start the 2023 formula world champion championship pardon me uh Vol said quote the best word i could use is spark there's a spark and it's fascinating to see there are shoulders lifted there are heads held high now there really is a direction that they can see where we're going and how we're moving forward it's a team that uh, can clearly or that clear has had a tremendously difficult winter and a difficult few years even prior to that but they can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel and the direction that we're going in end quote so that's uh interesting that uh you know that the the, the person that's been you know who, who's the new hire who's only been on the job for what four months now because i guess he went in what, what was that announced beginning of december 22 or thereabouts i mean he hasn't been on the job uh very very long anyways um the first uh, thing that he did with jeff Vols, that is is he hired our fellow canadian frederick brousseau to oversee williams organize or planning and operations he's a guy that spent uh over 20 years at um, pratt and whitney canada they build jet engines and uh, he really uh, rose up uh, through that uh, company to become a, a vice president uh 
uh, Vols said when talking about his uh, hire of a Brousseau, he said, quote, a Formula One car is circa 15,000 components that have to be built, produced, and fit together within the space of a few weeks. To get that properly done, you need amount of planning across all of your organization that really brings, and that's really what he brings to the table. He's done that at Pratt & Whitney. He's been there for over 20 years. He has a good experience and a good knowledge of how to bring thousands of people, and in our case, hundreds, together in a clinch moment. And especially under the cost cap, the more efficient you can be at doing that, the more money that's available uh, to develop the car later. I think that's a key element of every aspect of the team, end quote. So that's interesting to hear, Vols. He's not sitting down. He's still searching out for more talent and uh, trying to build that team, fill it out, and really get them going in the right uh, direction. But uh, interesting uh, to, to hear that um, that there's an improvement in morale. Okay, so we're just going to follow up on a story from last week. Uh, Lewis Hamilton has given a little bit more detail on the departure of his longtime personal trainer and assistant, Angela Cullen Hamilton, Mark Hamilton, that is. Uh, Hammy, can you fill us in on some more details? Yeah, so according to planetf1.com, Mr. Mark Scott, Lewis Hamilton suggested that Angela Cullen was ready to say goodbye to the incredibly challenging role which comes with the F1 lifestyle, which is exactly, Mark, what you and I talked about last week in the sense that she has yep. a young family. She's based in, in New, New Zealand, which is something I think a lot of people, including myself, didn't actually know until recently. Um, she's very talented, very capable, and I think it was probably just the time for her to make that make that shift now the timing i think is what perked a lot of people's attention or perked a lot of people's interest when it happened uh, right at the beginning of the season. But maybe the commitment from her was that she would stay with Lewis and make sure that he was ready for a championship rather than departing during the offseason. Uh, Mark Scott continues, Cullen had been a part of Hamilton's inner circle for seven years, but they've now gone their separate ways following a shock announcement earlier this month. Naturally, the speculation rumor will or rumor was rife in the immediate aftermath of the announcement as to why the duo had split, but Hamilton has confirmed it was simply a case of Cullen wanting a change of scenery after so many days, weeks, and months away from family and friends over the years, says Lewis Hamilton. It's an incredibly challenging role, I think, for anyone in these positions, Hamilton told Sky. It is a lot of traveling and a lot of time away from your family, and you grow incredibly close together. If you're at dinner, during your weekends, while you're traveling, it's usually you, your trainer, or physio, your family or whatever it may be. It's incredibly intimate in that sense. And you become great friends. Angela is living her life right now. She's got so many great ideas of things she wants to do. We talk and message pretty much every day. We're still going to go skydiving together and we're always going to be in each other's lives. We're stuck with each other, unfortunately, or fortunately. We've been through thick and thin. And I'm so grateful our relationship is as good as it is. And I think we're probably had one of the longest relationships in the sport. So incredibly grateful her for her. And I love her dearly. So I think, Mark, that puts a really nice bow on that story from last week that there was all kinds of all kinds of rumors and kind of speculation about the fact that that relationship had broken down and that simply wasn't the case yeah you know and, and i kind of hate when people kind of like speculate and things like that i mean it just to, to to me the timing seemed kind of weird and you know like uh, just a couple of races into the season like you're saying mark you know there there had to been you know may, maybe some reason for that uh, like like why leave two races into a, a year rather than in an off season or at the end of the year whatever it might be so you know it's i'm glad that he took the time just to to clear the air but um that's obviously going to leave a big hole in 
in, uh, you know, in his uh, professional circle there. So I wonder what uh, Lewis is going to do to uh, address that. Okay, moving along to the next uh, one. This is a, a, a story or stat that comes uh, to us uh, courtesy of motorsport.com. Number of sponsors based on each one of the team's websites, the Formula One teams, that is. On the high end, you have McLaren with 47. On the low end, you have Haas with 14. And then somewhere in the middle, you have teams like Mercedes, Aston Martin, Alpine that have sort of like high 20s, low 30s. And then uh, Red Bull and Ferrari both have 36. Alfa Romeo have 45, which I kind of found interesting because it doesn't look they got like uh, you know stickers and badges and logos for 45 sponsors on their car, but 47 for McLaren. Holy smokes. That, <laughs> that's a lot of uh, money that uh, they're, they're bringing in and kind of makes you wonder in this day and age when they're, they're, there's a cost cap and, and things like that. It's just like, what are they, you know, I mean, they can't spend that money. I mean, it's just like a lot of these companies, I guess, are just purely paying for the privilege of being you know, associated with a Formula One team, right? Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny you bring up that the Alfa Romeo question to a shock 45 sponsors. The question is not all sponsors are equal. And and I have to assume that the sponsors that are paying for real estate on the McLaren car are paying significantly more than Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo's two title sponsors, of course, Alfa Romeo, because this is really a branding deal, uh, and Stake. And then they've got yep. other sponsors, most of whom I've never heard of, Kick, Acceleron, Additive Industries, um, Axum Trade, Asos, AMX, Code Zero. And maybe I think a lot of these are probably Italian-based organizations. Why? because I haven't heard of them, but they certainly don't have many global brands that are sponsoring them. I think it's a lot of principally smaller industrial Italian brands, I think. Yeah, that, that's interesting because uh, like, like you see, I hadn't heard a lot of these ones either, but 47, what, what are they doing? Where's all that money going, Hammy? Like, what, what do you think? Like, at, at some point, you're just bringing money in and if you're only allowed to spend what is it 130 million dollars uh on the car 135 or whatever it is this year what's a team going to do with that they're just going to throw it in the bank well, if is you're that what it if is? you're mclaren you're probably paying down that immense amount of debt you've built up over the last decade or two but in the case of red bull or the yeah. case of yeah. of mercedes like yeah like anything you earn above and beyond um anything you earn above and beyond that cap is like it's cash at this point it's pure cash and this is why and this isn't something we intended to talk about today but it's one of the reasons that i'm resentful at the idea of a cost cap for drivers that you're already putting a cap on the amount and the number of personnel you can hire to run your factories you're effectively capping what you can pay those folks the sport is flushed with cash do not cap the potential earnings of a driver do not cap it. These teams are flush with cash. And if they're not, it's because they can't manage their finances properly. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's take a, another quick break here. When we come back, I got a couple of stories to talk about involving, uh, well, McLaren again and Aston Martin. We'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the program. And we're going to move along now nicely. So uh, the next story that we have is apparently that uh, McLaren have landed uh, a senior designer from Aston Martin. Mark, what's going on there? It's, it's good news when other teams are actively and aggressively trying to poach people from your organization. But according to motorsport.com, McLaren has landed senior Aston Martin 
aerodynamicist Mariano Alperin as part of an aggressive recruitment drive to boost the performance of its Formula One team. Now, of course, we actually talked a lot about McLaren over the last couple of weeks as they've been making some not insignificant personnel changes in terms of the structure and the leadership of that organization. And I'm going to kind of quote here from from uh, motorsport.com, but Alperin has had a great deal of experience in Formula One, having had spells at AGS and Minardi before joining British American Racing and eventually become head of aerodynamics at Honda from 2006 to 2007. After Honda, he became head of aerodynamics development at Sauber from 2008 until 2019 before moving across to Aston Martin as chief of aerodynamic technology. As part of McLaren's recent restructure, the restructure, the Woking-based outfit has set up a new technical executive team made up of David Sanchez, car concept. Of course, David Sanchez is just been plucked over from Ferrari, although I think in the offseason, it was widely understood that he was aggressively sending his resume out. So it was less of a recruiting move, but possibly more of an outbound uh, effort by Sanchez. But regardless, uh, as part of McLaren's recent restructure, the Woking-based outfit has set up a new technical executive team made up of Sanchez, car concept, Peter Pro... Prodromu, sorry, I'm struggling with my words, under aerodynamics, Neil Holday, engineering and design. The trio will report directly to team principal Andrea Stella. McLaren, this is uh, motorsport.com still, McLaren believes that change was needed if it was to capitalize on the opportunities that are coming with its new wind tunnel and simulator, which will be fully operational later this year. CEO Zach Brown made it clear that he felt the squad structure had been lacking in recent years, which is why it is now making significant changes. So it's good. It's good to see that this organization isn't sitting on its, well, it's not really sitting on its laurels because it hasn't really won anything in the past decade or so, but it's good to see that this team is being aggressive with pursuing personnel that they feel can help them better develop their car. And it's also kind of cool to see that they're taking some innovative ways to manage the structure of their personnel, especially at the the manager, senior manager, director, and executive level. So this three-headed dragon, like I spoke to it a couple of minutes ago, uh, is ultimately going to be responsible for for car design, but another big win for McLaren. You know, we talked about this, Mark, a couple of weeks ago. They got David Sanchez over from Ferrari. That was a coup. And now they've landed Aston Martin aerodynamicist Mariana Alperin, who is going to join the team, I believe, next year, because I think he's going to be on gardening leave alongside David Sanchez into 2024. Yeah, that's interesting. That was going to be my next question was, uh, you know, when does this actually take effect? So, I mean, they've got two very, yeah, long time. Yeah, long time. They got like, they've, yeah, they, they've made two very important signings, bringing two very talented people into their organization, but they're going to be sitting at home. And, you know, that that must be really, really difficult if you know, you're one of those people that has that unique resume and that unique skill set and then having to sit around for nine months, months and nine months, months and months. Like, think about David yeah, Sanchez. Like, incredible. he was signed basically a month ago now. He will spend 10 months sitting at home being unable to contribute to the team. Like they can't send him a PDF. They can't send him a CAD file, nothing. It's literally gardening leave. It's just, it's watching F1 on TV, following F1 in the media. He can't talk to the personnel. He can't have business related conversations. He is effectively on the sideline waiting out that period. And again, if I'm a formula one team and I'm losing somebody to a rival, I would enforce that because I don't want them taking all of our fresh ideas 
to a competitor, like, yeah, make him sit out. And the gardening leave is typically the balance of whatever was left on their contract or their contracts would state that if you depart to go to a rival, this is the period of time through which you would have to sit out. And then sometimes that, that clause doesn't exist. And then it's an agreement amongst teams. Yeah, well, I guess that would be kind of like uh, the situation that we saw in the offseason with Andreas Seidel uh, leaving uh, McLaren and going over to Audi because, I mean, he's pretty much slid right into that uh, position. I mean, what was he was supposed to go there originally, like 2025 or something? I think that was the the speculation he was going to go there in a couple of years, but then everything uh, kind of changed, and I guess... It just kind of like me. I I wonder what those conversations were. I mean, obviously, you would think at least on the surface that it doesn't, you know, McLaren's the one that kind of really gets like hung out to dry on that. But who knows, right? But uh, certainly that's that's a long time to wait for a couple of uh, very important key people to, to show up uh, to the office and start doing what they need to do. And I mean, they're going to be like so... F- they, they're going to have so much they're going to have to like catch up with just in terms of technology and Formula One in general before they start uh, learning their new jobs and start being able to, to make positive uh, contributions there. Um, next story comes from uh, RacingNetNews365.com, and this is an article by uh, Anna Francis. And uh, the article is all about uh, some people in Formula One, including then Damon Hill and Tom Clarkson, who feel that, uh, that Lance Stroll, the Aston Martin driver, has got a bit of a different take and there's a positive change that has been sparked in the young Canadian uh, this year. I mean, it's his season kind of got off to a very rough start. So he had that cycling accident literally days before testing, wasn't it? And then, you know, he had the, the cast on the hand and like very, I mean, he did race in Bahrain, the opening race of the season, managed to get some points, uh, was looked pretty good along the way, despite the fact that uh, he obviously had to be hurting, uh, even though he passed all the fitness tests uh, set up by uh, Aston Martin and the FIA, etc. Um, but then uh, last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, in Jeddah didn't score any points, had a mechanical failure that took him out the race. But I mean, he was looking pretty, pretty good. But I mean, people like Tom Clarkson and Damon Hill feel that uh, he's uh, Lance has a, a different uh, perspective and uh, he feels that uh, he's like also uh, changed his approach to the media and this is something they they speculate might uh, be in part uh, you know due to thanks uh, you know from you know being involved with Drive to Survive and things like that I don't know I mean we, we obviously don't get a chance to see Lance that often neither you or I or Lance's uh, you know inner circle but uh, Tom Clarkson said on the F1 Nation podcast, quote, I think he's a much more engaging interview now than he has been in the past. I've always felt the past that he resents doing the media work, whereas this year I've seen a market change. I do wonder if it's got to do with anything with the Netflix cameras who went over the winter to Canada with him and spent a lot of time and I am told he really enjoyed being with them. Now when you speak to him, he smiles at you, he answers your questions fully. It's almost a a bit like Fernando Alonso in a way. He wants to be liked. He's almost thinking of legacy and Instead of swimming against the current, so why not swim with it occasionally and have an easier ride? End quote. You got to think the legacy thing here. You got to think that he's talking, Clarkson's talking about Fernando rather than Lance. I mean, Lance is only like, what, what, 24? I'm, you know, you'd have to think Lance is still thinking about making an impression and, and like achieving things in Formula One rather than legacy. I mean, come on. Maybe, but, uh, but maybe. It's, and, it's interesting. And I actually totally True. agree. Okay, sure. I totally agree with the tenor of this article because I, I'm sitting here right now on Lance Stroll. The Lance Stroll Island in the Lance Stroll Villas condo building, sitting in my second floor condo, looking over the pool, and and I, I gotta say, quite candidly, I've been pretty disappointed with his media work 
during his entire tenure in Formula One. He he doesn't come across as engaging. He doesn't come across as engaged. He doesn't come across as particularly likable. He doesn't come across as charismatic. And I think that might be related to a couple of things. Like I think he's been mired in mediocrity for most of his career. Obviously, 17 was his rookie season. He scored a podium. 18 was a disaster. 19, he makes the switch to another team and they go through their struggles. 20, he scores a couple of podiums. 21's a disappointment. 22 is a disappointment. And I think a lot of that may have been criticism that was levied towards him. But I think ultimately he's he's feeling good. And I think he recognizes that he is an opportunity this year with this car to rewrite the narrative about who he is and, and about his career. Because I think it must be frustrating for him that he's often dismissed as a serious Formula One driver because his dad owns the team. And that his dad bought a team mm-hmm. to keep him in Formula One. And I think he might be excited now because He's surrounded by greatness and he was with he was with Vettel, but I just I don't think Vettel was anywhere near as hungry, perhaps. And that that might be doing huge disservice to Vettel, but I just I feel like Fernando's on a whole different level of of hunger and desire to win and his willingness to do anything. And I just I feel like Lance is in a spot where he thinks, hey, there's an opportunity where I can I can reframe the perspective on who and what I am as a Formula One driver. And and I think that's bleeding over into his media obligations when he's talking to people and he's doing interviews. He's he's more excitable. He's more engaged. And, and I think that's easier. Like, I think it must be tough to do media interviews week after week after week when you're scrapping for P10 or P9 or P11. And then all of a sudden you're in a position where, hey, you know what? I miss winter testing. And I jump into the car and I've got broken bones and I score a P6 like that's that's a very different place to be psychologically so I think uh I think that probably accounts for a lot of what we're hearing about in these in these articles yeah I, I think that's fair and, and and some people just are more at ease and and don't mind doing things like that and it's funny when I read you know this this article and 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 saw some of those quotes from Damon and from from Tom Clarkson and it, it reminded me of some of the you know the interviews that I've done over the years and and, and it's funny too like the the people that don't want to be there you you can just tell it's just like their their attitude sucks it's just like you just get like the you know, the, the the shortest you know, most oh, oh, uninteresting totally, answers, you know, it's just like, they're just like, you know, it's the old Marshawn Lynch comment. I'm only here. So I don't get fined kind of thing. Yep. Although that's, uh, you know, that was, well, that was a little bit different, but you know, that was kind of became a, you know, a comment that nobody forgot about, but I mean, it, it, it really is interesting too. Like I'd seen it in the career of some soccer players that, uh, I'd kind of interviewed over the years. And some of them, there, there was a couple of them were just horrible in the beginning. And, I, I kind of wonder too if it's a, it's an age thing because I noticed with the you know there, there's two I'm not going to name them here but uh, there's a couple I, I noticed that when they were younger kind of like Lance's well before that sort of like mid twenties sort of like early twenties I don't know if it was just sort of like age and discomfort or just I'm, I'm just totally just not cool with this whole media thing but as they kind of like uh, went got older got into their mid and like later 20s like it kind of like changed a little bit so you know maturity and 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 that that could have a little bit to to do with it but there is it's nothing 
worse than an interview like that. And then on the flip side, sometimes you get these, um, you get people and, and sometimes they're, they're, they're the players. Sometimes they're the coaches or managers or just personalities. Some of them, they just, they're, they're so comfortable in front of the mic where they just have this sort of this, this presence about them that, you know, you just even 30 seconds or a minute with them is gold because, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're so much more that you, you get out of it. I but, love, uh, I love everything yeah, that you're saying. Then. And, you know, yeah. we we probably don't openly speak about this, but we've had the opportunity to bring on some pretty big names on this show. And we bring on people that we feel are going to be engaging and people that want yes. to be a part of yes. the show that we don't want to throw up a really crappy 20 minute interview with somebody who is at the long day of doing interviews and isn't interested in being here or is resentful for the fact that they have to spend time with us. So when we reach out and we talk to somebody like Megan, like she's super engaged and excited to be on the show and she's going to come on soon, by the way, of course, she's going to be debuting at F1 Academy this year or Hamda Al-Kobesi like came on last year and she was amazing and she was funny and she had fun. And, you know, it's probably the first podcast she'd ever done. And it was a great experience for her. And it resulted in a great product also going to be at F1 Academy or when we've had Matt Clark on. So a lot of these, a lot of the interviews that we've done, we've handpicked because we know it's a special moment for these folks that they probably are young enough that this might be their first long form interview or their first opportunity to be on a podcast. But it also helps us because mm-hmm. we can start cultivating relationships with young drivers and, and young people in the media that have significant upside. And then that relationship is there that benefits us in the future when we can tap them on the shoulder two or three years from now when they're a star and say, hey, would you mind coming on the show? But yeah, we're very conscious about who we do and, and don't bring on the show. And I'm incredibly yep. proud of the roster of folks that have been kind enough to join us over the last couple of years, because whether they're a driver or a media personality, everyone we've brought on has been ecstatic and excited to be here. And I think that that that's something that people can pick up on when they're listening to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to the next story. This comes to us uh, from Ed Straw over the race.com. Article was entitled F1 mustn't target Red Bull's dominance for sake of its integrity. And I guess this kind of um, goes, this is kind of a spin-off because we talked about the the, the likability of Red Bull compared to Mercedes and some of the other teams uh, last week, which was a bit of a touchy point for, for, for some people. But we were trying to to hate on, uh, on, on one team more than another and promote another one. But I, I think that uh, that Ed makes uh, you know, some good points in this uh, the, the, this article, right? And I think we most people you would think want to see closer tighter racing you want to see i mean what one that i think that was uh, very tantalizing was that uh, that that real scrap we saw between max and charles at uh, at jetta last year of course the entire 2021 season when it kind of went back and forth between max and lewis and you know, I, I I can I understand why people maybe be a little bit frustrated that uh, you know unless you're a Red Bull fan then you're probably loving each and every moment of it. But you can see why some people be disappointed because the the one thing is that you know this era wasn't supposed to be where one team dominates more over the other. But 
that, that that was part of the reason with these new regs, which we talked about a little bit earlier, was supposed to be the leveler. There was going to be more parity, so it would bring teams like Mercedes and and Red Bull and Ferrari all closer together, you know, potentially in other teams, and that there would be a little bit more unpredictability. That you know, it's not always going to be Red Bull every week, and it's not always going to be Ferrari. It's not always going to be Red Bull or whoever. But I guess that's maybe just an unrealistic, uh, romantic you know expectation or notion that maybe i i know that uh, that's maybe a thought process that went through my mind but you know do you want to see them like alter the rules to sort of like handicap red bull in a way because to me that's kind of like the against the spirit of formula one sure you might not be happy that red bull's running away with it at the moment and again like you say we we don't really know what this car is really capable of because we what they're not sandbagging but we 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 have a suspicion that they not really we they don't have it turned up to 11 and they're they're still blowing the you know blowing everybody away which is uh, which is crazy and 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 I don't think that they should. I mean, I think that would be against the spirit of Formula One. I mean, Red Bull and Honda have have, have put their heads together. They've built a, you know, Honda's built a fantastic power unit. Red Bull have designed and built a fantastic car. They've got the best driver in Formula One at the moment. And and Max is driving in a league of his own. I mean, you never see Max put a, a wheel wrong. Just like you rarely saw Lewis do the same thing when he had his run of chips there in the teens and then they've got a very very good driver in Sergio Perez I mean it's just the culmination of everything kind of coming together at the right place in the right time and they're reaping the rewards from that I mean it would be a different um, you know story if there was something naughty going on that uh, they're circumventing the rules and yes I'm I'm hinting at Ferrari in 2019 and that you know the whole you know alleged uh, you know engine mapping thing that they got smacked for but the the whole <laughs> the, the whole uh, you know truth never did see the light of day but you know, I I would be. Let's put it this way: as much as I'd like to see that gap between Red Bull and everyone else, it doesn't matter if it's Mercedes or Aston or Ferrari, whoever. I'd like to see that gap closer and see them having to fight for it a little bit more. I would hate to see the situation where there was some sort of disadvantage imposed on them just to close up the rest of the field because. Red Bull got it right and everybody else didn't, and you know they have to you know, basically legislate Red Bull back to parody with the rest of the field. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And I also agree with Ed Straw that Red Bull's built a bulletproof package. And, and if they don't encounter reliability issues this year, that there's no question that this could be an all-time great season for them. And and they they earned it. And you can say what you want about the fact that they had the, the cost cap overspend at 21, but the rules are the rules and they were penalized for it. And if people don't like that, then they can only shake their fist at the other nine teams for agreeing to those rules. But it's <laughs> exactly, it's exactly. right here that endlessly, and I quote here, but endlessly adjusting regulations to create disruption, effectively performance competitiveness, um, shouldn't be used as a shortcut. And I think he's right. He talks about the fact that there are some long-term tools that are being applied that should create some parity, such as the cost cap. And I think that's not something that was going to create 10 competitive teams overnight, that it's going to take some time. But I don't think endlessly tweaking the the regulations to create parity is ideal either. Like this would be 
the comp would be, let's say the NBA and, and you'll look at Steph Curry and the Splash Brothers. And for that period of, I don't know, 2014, 2015 through 2022, they were an absolute juggernaut winning four NBA championships and just raining threes on everybody. This would be saying like, look, you know what? They've been to the NBA finals in Four, in 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, they went five straight years. They're too dominant and they're driving a lot of their offense from the three-point line. We need to move the three-point line back to to dampen their the to dampen the effects of their strength. Like that that's a no-go. And I get it. It's always happened. It happened in 21 and and those regulation changes significantly hurt Mercedes. Not to take anything away from Red Bull, but I just I don't want to see constant machinations of the regulations to bring the field together, build better regulations from the very beginning and just give some of these long-term tools time to, to time to get traction. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in favor of changing it to like disadvantage one team just to close the gap to the other teams and and penalize them for getting everything right. That, I don't think that's cool at all. What I am in favor of is like we talked off uh, or talked about at the beginning of the show where there's there's a clarification on uh, another silly rule like we had with the uh, you know the the, the the stop go penalties and Fernando's you know saga uh, the other week in Saudi Arabia where they touched the car with the jack and, and that that I think is is good because that affects everybody equally, right? And it was it, it was a silly situation that shouldn't have happened, and it's happened you know before, and nobody got penalized for it. That sort of stuff, I think, is fine to to adjust on the fly. But bigger things, especially things that disadvantage one or a couple of teams compared to the rest, I don't think that's uh, really uh, good at all. Okay, uh, let's move along to the next one. So apparently, things between Total Wolf and Lawrence Stroll are getting a little bit frosty, and this is a uh, you know supposedly allegedly due to the fact that that the green cars have been doing a little bit better than the silver. Well, I guess the black cars uh, this year. So, Mark, w- what's what's going on? Is um, I'm sorry for even did, putting did, this did, on the uh, on the on the outline. This is such a clickbait title so i know right according to (laughs) according to a pundit that's heard from somebody who's heard from somebody else who's heard from somebody else the entire mercedes enterprise is upset because aston martin is outperforming the mother team in in mercedes so this is is very much a clickbait title but allegedly total wolf in particular uh is is growing frustrated um allegedly frustrated with aston martin although his frustration should probably be directed internally and inward towards his own team that a a customer team like aston martin could build such a, a stellar it's early but can i say that a stellar package around their own power unit but again the pundits big pundits and the analysts being analysts are always looking for exciting stories. And I think they were trying to, to stir up some controversy where controversy doesn't exist. And obviously, I think we saw yeah, Total enough. Wolf embracing some members of the Aston Martin team the first two weekends of the year. And I think if if I'm Mercedes, like ideally, we want to be winning Grand Prix. But it's a heck of a lot better to have a Mercedes-powered Aston Martin on the podium than a Ferrari-powered yes, yeah. Ferrari. Like, yeah. that's still good news. Like, Perfect. people know it's a Mercedes-powered car the team is literally named the yeah i think it's a good news story and i think this is a perfect example of the media trying to drum up a story where one doesn't exist yeah, you know, you you literally stole the words out of my mouth because I was just thinking that if you're Toto, w- would you or, or Mercedes in general, uh, w- would you be happy that yeah, you got your car or two cars on the podium, but then your customer teams are doing well? It's like, oh yeah, McLaren, 
they have Mercedes power. Aston Martin, oh yeah, they have Mercedes power. It's like, and then Williams, oh, they have Mercedes power too. Look how how well they did. So if anything, where their customer teams are now, well, I mean, apart from from Aston Martin, but with McLaren and with the with, with Williams, they're kind of languishing towards the back of the pack. You know, that's you know, it, it's not the end of the world but it's not from from a pr point of view you know you got like this you know, this very storied and historic team and they've uh, had this phenomenal record in forming the one especially over the last decade so i don't know i agree with you i think it's just one of those things where there's somebody's trying to make a story where one story does not uh, exist so uh, another interesting one here is apparently the ford ceo has visited the red bull powertrains campus bark what's going on there yeah or what went on I don't know there. if it's big news, but uh, I, I saw a photo on Twitter a couple of days ago posted by Dan, Engine Mode 11, all the credit to him because he managed to secure this. But Red Bull Ford Powertrains, that beautiful new logo, is officially adorning the side of the factory on the Milton Keynes campus at the Red Bull uh, facility where they will be producing the Red Bull Ford powertrains. And the Ford CEO actually paid a visit to Milton Keynes this past week to get a sense of the progress. And of course, the Ford CEO being Jim Farley. But he visited the Red Bull powertrains campus in Milton Keynes ahead of their partnership in 2026. And of course, Red Bull, I don't know why I'm forgetting the team name, but Red Bull will continue to, to <laughs> utilize Honda power units through 2025. But the Red Bull Ford powertrains, which will be a collaborative effort, will be inserted into the back of the Red Bull contender in 2026 going forward. Ford CEO Jim Farley has visited the new Red Bull powertrains uh, facility, according to Racing News 365. The car giant announced its involvement with the team at their RB19 car launch in February, where they confirmed their partnership with Red Bull powertrains division to produce the electrified elements of the power unit. The team will be one of five other entrants, including Audi and Honda, the latter of whom will continue their involvement despite their deal with Red Bull ending in 2025. Racing News 365 previously revealed that Ferrari were banned for the power unit working group in December, and it goes on and on and on. But ultimately, the exciting thing here is uh, Ford and Red Bull and their integration is moving at a very, very steady pace. We already knew that the Red Bull powertrains factory was finished, complete. We also know that Red Bull has at least a semi-functioning internal combustion engine on on, on the test bench that they are actually able to fire it up. It might have one cylinder, but they fired it up. And now Ford will begin to incorporate its people capital and its expertise to assist Red Bull with developing, building, and testing all the electrical components that will complete the power unit package for 2026. And of course, that means the extensively rebuilt and redesigned MGUK, which will be required to generate significantly more electrical power than the MGUH and MGUK do combined now. So Ford, Red Bull, that marriage seems to be in a really, really good place. I'm excited to see how that uh, how the development of the power unit uh, continues over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's pretty cool the picture that uh, that Dan posted when, when you see the Ford logo next to the Red it's Bull uh, lettering it's on the surreal. side. It's surreal that three looks, months ago yeah, this partnership yeah. didn't exist, and now it's on the side of a building yeah. in Milton Keynes. It's crazy. And, and it's funny, too. It, it doesn't look odd. It seems like there's a, a lot of synergy there. Totally, it seems like, totally. uh, you know, it's, it's very funny. But, you know, it just uh, every time, you know, when I, when I see this and I hear these stories and kind of like go back to the way that this story has kind of evolved over the last uh, several weeks and couple of months is that it just seems so kind of funny, right? That uh, like the whole <laughs> situation, because I mean, they're, they're dominating Formula One and they have done for the past uh 
you know, what was a year and a half, two years now? I mean, while they've been super competitive for several years now with Honda Power. And, you know, I mean, are, are we going to bet against Red Bull and Max no. not winning the championship no. this no. year? I mean, there, there's not a year. chance, right? Or next, I mean, year. No, or next year. Yeah, I mean, there, nobody's even close, but... If if you go to the factory, the, the, the it's Red Bull power Ford powertrains. I mean, it's 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 very very. I mean, it's cool to see, but it seems very strange at the same time when you know it's not Ford power in the back of those cars uh, for the moment. Okay, so this is another one which is an interesting story. So now, uh, Bar Founder, so that's British American Racing. That was a team that was founded in the late nineties and um, had uh, well uh, Jacques Villeneuve, the Canadian driver and former formula one world champion was uh, one of their drivers that morphed into Braun and then that or to honda and then to Braun and then eventually into uh, mercedes so that's the the genesis and line of that team anyways craig pollock has uh, confirmed uh, that uh, they're they're booted up a uh, formula equal f1 team entry we found a number of uh, stories about this on espn cnn.com and the racer.com it's all over the place so this is an interesting one uh, mark so apparently uh, what uh, what pollock wants to do is uh, well he submitted an expression of interest for a 50 percent male 50 percent female formula one team called formula one equal so uh pollock had the following to say quote our ambition to deliver and build opportunities and pathways for women to get to the very top level inside motorsports the concept and the idea was to try and build a formula one team 50 percent male 50 percent female which is extremely hard to do if you have an existing formula one team it's a lot easier uh, with a clean sheet of paper we know that we are going to have to go through our academy systems we know we're going to have to build it up because there are not enough women at the moment who are trained up to the level of formula one and they've got to earn a place in there at the same time um so he goes on to say that uh, that uh, quote we have uh, we are in intense discussions with uh, what i would say a gulf area country i'm not really in the position to talk about that and be fully open about it at this present time that will come out in the very near future and i hope it's going to work because it does take a lot of money end quote so mark interesting and you know craig pollock was not really a name that i expected to see pop up in formula one Me either and, and, and the story here yeah, if, yeah. if you remember is he was the manager of world champion jacques villeneuve in 1997 and that's right and uh, yep. there was this um i don't know if the divorce was particularly nasty but craig Pollock back in the day when it was pretty easy to spin up a Formula One team with a, a couple million bucks, spun up a Formula One team, British American Racing, which of course sponsored by the tobacco company, and Jack went with them. And of course, we all know that story went nowhere and the team was unsuccessful, but it became Honda, it became Braun, and it became Mercedes. So it became something. Jack's career in Formula One pretty much ended upon his departure from, from the Williams team, which is unfortunate to all of us. But yeah, he pops up and he's announced that He's looking to start this Formula Equal F1 team. They've submitted their expression of interest to the FIA. Uh, interesting takeaways from this is he's very clear that this will not be a European-based team, that the 
entire operation will be based in a Gulf country. So when we talk about the Gulf, we're talking about Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, uh, the UAE and in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So presumably it's going to be either the UAE or Saudi Arabia. I, I think that's where the logistics and the infrastructure exist. And we know that there's some real appetite in the kingdom to bring a Formula One based team there. And of course, his his unique spin Can on I- this is that he wants to have sure. equal genders, 50% women and 50% men, including in the cockpit. That's interesting. Maybe I can get your take on that. But uh, wh- why would is he just looking to like set that up at a Gulf country just founding, because of the founding. money? Like so, found, I, I, I think, okay. and I, I did a little bit of digging. It, it's pretty clear because he doesn't have. $200 million, $400 million, $600 million that I think he's ultimately going to to lead the bid. But I, I have to assume that there's some significant funding that's going to come from a Gulf country. And as part of that, as part of that package that they would base the team there. Uh, but I, I have to assume it. We don't know, uh, but we have to assume that's probably, and that's not a bad thing. It's just how business works. And it's just how Formula One works. And no, I think no, it'd be no. Cool yeah, to have yeah, a team yeah, there. Totally but understand. yeah, that's probably that's probably what's going to ultimately happen if they're successful. And of course, there's no there's no guarantee that any new F1 team is going to get on the grid. Of course, they're up against Andretti Global, and they're up against potentially a, a renewed Prima bid, and they're potentially up against High Tech and some other companies that might be looking to get a sniff of Formula One. But but yeah, like you said, I was not expecting to see Craig Pollock grace my news feed this morning at all. Yeah, it's interesting too because uh, the, the the reason why I, th- I think it's interesting that it would be like a, a Gulf country based team is that some of these expressions of interest that we've seen pop up in the last what four or six months or whatever it is, maybe even less, is that they're they're not geographically limited to what you and I have uh, sort of like uh, coined as Power Alley in, in that sort of that area, sort of immediately adjacent to to Silverstone. I mean, we know that uh, that we have a, a couple of teams like Haas and. Alpha Tauri that are based elsewhere, and same with with, with Sauber. But you know some of the ones that we, we've heard like a potential interest from like an Asian based team as well. So it's uh, it's interesting to see like where these uh, you know where the interest and potentially where the money and you know the the, the housing for one of these new teams uh, could be. But like you say, I mean it is only an expression of interest. Doesn't mean it's going to get off the ground. But it is also a very interesting concept that uh, that that Pollock and his group are coming up with. And what I find even more interesting than this sort of like 50-50 male-female split is that the way that uh, they figure that they can do this to sort of, you know, promote and get more... Or, or develop female drivers with the the ultimate aim of getting one into Formula One or more um, is that they they feel that they have to do it from scratch and that they can't somehow you know take over another team, which would be probably pretty difficult to do because they don't come on the market very often, right? And that it's just uh, that if they're going to do it, they're going to do it uh, from from the ground up. That's uh, extremely fascinating. Anyways, Tammy, I, I don't have the, the the music queued up here, but you wanted to. Do I'll make it quick. A, I'll a make it Moto- super quick. You, you'll make so it quick. My promise this year is we'd be more consistent with MotoGP quarter. So we talked about MotoGP last week. I thought this was a really great yeah. summary here from Lewis Duncan at Autosport.com, but he he highlights some of the most important things that we learned from the Portuguese MotoGP Grand Prix last week, which was. Through season opener. One, the jury's still out on sprint races. 
MotoGP is going to have a sprint race every single race this year. And if you want to know why that's complicated or problematic, tune into last Sunday's show. Number two, aggression levels in MotoGP do need checking. Aggression can lead to ugly spills, which can lead to ugly, ugly injuries, which can ultimately disrupt the championship in some unexpected ways. The new weekend format, which includes that that sprint race is brutal and is already taking its toll on the drivers, on the garages. It's significantly more work. It's significantly more pain. Uh, we've already seen the poor, luckless victim, Paul Espargo, who suffered a violent accident in the time attack phase of FP2 and was left hospitalized with fractures to his jaw and back. He's going to be out. Espargo's incident practice was made worse. I'm sorry, Espargo's incident was made worse by the safety of the track at turn 10 where he crashed, which is an important factor considering when talking about the strain of the new format. So ugh, these weekends are too much. Practice, practice, practice. Sprint race, qualifying Grand Prix, it's too much. Magnaia really is a, a changed man. So of course, the title challenge in 2022 was messy and that was largely through his own mistakes. He seems to be a more refined, a more polished rider this year, which could lead to some ultimate successes for him. Marquez's wild weekend shows limits to his genius. And of course, he had a crash that was all of his own making with a cold, hard front tire. He got some significant backlash and some significant criticism to that. And maybe some cracks are starting to appear in the facade that is his perception as a, an ultimate all-time rider in Moto. GP, Aprilia approved 2022 was no flash in the pan. Yamaha continues to be a disaster after so many years of dominance. Ducati has now usurped them and Honda as the most powerful team in Formula One, most powerful powerful and dominant team in MotoGP. And of course, all of their factory teams, their satellite teams are absolutely excelling. KTM, not as bad as first thought. And Dorna's fan engagement should be commended. So Dorna is MotoGP's equivalent of FOM. Big news from this last weekend, the total weekend crowd for the 2023 Portuguese Grand Prix was 124,000 people. That is up from 76,000 in 2022. And crucially, the Saturday crowd had pretty much doubled from the 17.5 from the previous year to this year. So some good news there. And then finally, trust and race direction needs an instant boost. So lots going on in the world of MotoGP, and I'll make sure we have a nice five-minute snippet every single episode from here until the end of the season. <laughs> you know, obviously there was that big crash last week that we talked about, which was uh, really kind of nasty. And unfortunately I saw it once, which was you know, one time too many. Uh, but the, the one thing that I just can't get out of my mind was that uh, the, the crash that Mark Marquez had. Like I, I've watched it a bunch of times and I, I, I just uh, still can't get my, uh, my mind around it and just uh, can't, uh, you know, I guess uh, even the best get caught out uh, at times. Okay, let's take a, a real quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to preview the Australian Grand Prix before we shut it down for the night. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back on the flip side. All right, we're back for one more segment and we're going to talk about the Australian Grand Prix, which, you know, to me still feels like it's days and days away. But I mean, from where we're sitting here on the West Coast, we are 18 hours behind what's happening on the track at Melbourne right now. So it's a well and truly race weekend uh, up and running and uh, literally off to the races while we still sit here and... um, 
Well, well, they're getting their weekend started in in Australia and other parts of the uh, <laughs> other parts of the world. We still have to get our Friday started. We still haven't finished our Thursday, so I'm not really quite mentally there quite yet. But uh, spiritually, I guess I kind of ready for it because it's a race weekend. Excited about it, like uh, the Australia Grand Prix. I've always enjoyed it. Like the changes that they made to the Albert Park Circuit last year to try and improve it. And this one, Mark, is is. it's i'm not used to seeing it out of sequence because i mean for years and years and years it was the opening grand prix and then you know the i guess the one kind of i don't really want to call it a stain is because that's not really fair is this when covid was kicking off three years ago it literally happened the same weekend as the australian grand prix because they were going to have it then they weren't they kind of went back and forth and then ultimately they decided to err on the side of the caution even though all the teams were there all the fans were there but then this this covid thing kicked off they decided to cancel it of course we didn't have the australian for a grand prix for a couple of years uh, makes return last year and then this year so we're, we're not in the traditional time slot or time of year where we're kind of a couple of races into it but uh, i guess better late than never mark what do we really have to talk about because a couple we, a couple of things let's keep it. this let's a keep this positive things. okay first okay. of all okay. i i totally sure. agree with what you're saying sure. by the way and, and i was I, I can't remember if it was will buxton that was saying this or if it was on the checkered flag podcast but there's something there's something because we've been starting the season in Melbourne for so long that there's always this unique sense of eagerness and anticipation and tension for the race because you have no idea what the championship's going to look like. You go in, it's a blank canvas, and you learn a lot from the race. It's not a great track, and that's kind of overshadowed by the fact that there's just so much excitement about the fact that Formula One is back. Sure. But this year it's different. Can I jump in there oh, for a second? Okay. It, it might not be a it might not be the greatest track, but I don't think there's any arguing that the oh, setting oh, is you're spectacular. stealing all my lightning. So, so I'll, I'll finish <laughs> quick and then I'll kick it over to you. So we don't have that suspense this year because the championship's underway and we already have a lot of data and a lot of intel. Yep. The piece that I absolutely do adore about this is the backdrop is absolutely stunning it feels like every year we go there there's more skyscrapers and they're taller the beaches or are are more beautiful and and the the tropical scenery is more lush like everything about the backdrop is just beautiful and it it boggles my mind that in this world where nimbyism dominates every public discourse and every public (laughs) conversation that they're still able to have a formula one race in a park immediately adjacent to the downtown core. And you hear so many stories about the fact that all these people that travel there for the race, they're all woken up at seven, eight, nine in the morning because all of the support races are getting on the track. And Australia is just such, it's a beautiful country, uh, both in terms of appearance and just culturally, like we, we've had we've had Ian on before, and we talk about the fact that sport is so deeply ingrained in the culture that the weather and the climate is is so conducive to sport that whether it's um, Australian rules football or rugby or or football or or baseball or softball or basketball or swimming, like the country is just passionate about sports, and that extends into to motorsports. And last year we saw a record four hundred and twenty thousand people show up for the Australian Grand Prix, and it was overshadowed a little bit by the 
obscene 440,000 people that showed up at Coda and they might be doing some things this year to squeeze in some more people, but almost half a million people turning through those gates in three days in a single weekend is, is absurd. It's just absolutely absurd. And most of those fans are domestic fans because it's difficult and, and, and complicated to get to Australia that they rely on, on homegrown fans to, to, to spin those turnstiles. And it's just been a phenomenal success story. And of course, they have in Australia. They've lost Daniel Ricciardo. He's not on the grid this year, but they have rookie Oscar Piastri. There's a ton of Australians in, in the support series. This is just, it's a beautiful event with a beautiful backdrop in a beautiful country. And there are still some really exciting things to talk about. And one of those is that the this is a track with medium speed corners that are extremely well suited to the Aston Martin. So there's every reason to think that both Aston Martins bearing a DNF and a technical issue could score a ton of points. It's going to be really spicy to see the ongoing relationship between on track relationship between Max Verstappen and and his teammate Sergio Perez that there's a lot to be excited about this this weekend man like I don't know if you agree but I'm not writing off the championship like we know who's going to win but I'm not going to write off my interest in the championship because there's still so much fun stuff to talk about. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to come, you know, come across as too overly pessimistic. I mean, sure. I mean, it, it's it's all gone Red Bull's way the last uh, couple of races, but I mean, a lot of these other teams haven't introduced uh, any upgrades to their car. I mean, granted, I mean, there, there's a huge gap that they need to close between themselves and Red Bull. But I mean, there's been some great stories so far. I mean, I, I think that uh, that that Aston Martin, at least through the first two races of the season, have been a revelation. I think it's been a lot of fun to watch. I mean, there there have been some questions questions is like you know how good is this car really is is, is fernando i mean fernando's driving very well for for someone who's 42 years old but i've, I've heard it speculated that uh, you know fernando's not really the driver that he once well i mean he still is but maybe not quite uh i guess i guess the the gist of it was is that somebody could get more out of that car Nobody so could. you know potentially whether that is true they, they you know you don't no think way. so eh? I, I mean that so that's interesting but also too i mean if lance doesn't have that dnf uh in in saudi arabia a couple of weeks ago they were going to take another handsome pile of home points home with them and i think that uh, that they the odds are that they will do again this weekend i mean mercedes don't seem to be quite close enough to challenge him I mean, they do at certain times, but uh, it just over the course of a race that we've seen in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, that the the advantage over the long term seems to go to to uh, to Aston Martin. So that's going to be one that we're going to watch as well. Um, it's always interesting as well to see how what's happening in between the teams themselves, uh, between uh, say George Russell and Lewis Hamilton. I mean, Mercedes is interesting too because we haven't seen them close that gap yet. So there, there, there were some comments I was reading this week that Toto says it's going to take them a year to close the gap to, to, to Red Bull. I mean, I guess that's kind of a you know admission for from Toto, if true, that uh, that the cost cap just prevents you of engineering and spending your way out of a problem this is a medium to long-term approach and the the one thing that you can't really count on is that uh, there, there's no constant here right i mean just because you might uh, you know you're getting better doesn't mean that that red bull is not going to improve themselves or if they're not going to improve are they going to stay the same or even 
go backwards. I mean, it's they've been you know getting better and better each and every year. So you would think that the, that's almost the former rather than the latter. Then, of course, Ferrari is an interesting uh, case study. There's there's still some obvious uh, issues there that we've uh, you know come to really well. It's just kind of been there for a very, very long time, but it will will be like Ferrari's an interesting team to watch, especially as the year goes on, the longer that uh, Frederick Vasseur is in the, in the, in the hot seat as the team principal. And I, I want to talk now about the comments that uh, were made by, by, by Sergio Perez, because it kind of leads back into the conversation I want to have about uh, Ferrari uh, because, you know, they still, you know, they just don't want to make that uh, that call about who their number one driver is. But I feel like that we all know from Red Bull that that number one driver is Max. And even though it kind of isn't really said very often out in public, I think Sergio's comments about the what was a you know a big deal at the time apparently in Saudi Arabia about that Sergio felt like he wasn't getting the same information over the radio compared to Max, and that was putting him at a, as a disadvantage. If you hear the comments from Sergio in the in doing the media rounds in 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 Melbourne the past couple of days, it's kind of like, well, nah, yeah, it wasn't such a big deal. We're all in this same page we're all pointed the same direction and everything is is good i kind of feel like reading between the lines that uh i don't know if somebody sat yes, him down yes, or he, yes, i just so feel like he was reminded was very much what happened you're the number two yeah, driver yeah, 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 yeah you're yeah. the number two driver here sergio and 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 i think you know at some point ferrari have to make that call too right that, that they're going to have to decide that it's going to be either charles or carlos and i mean it, it has to be charles leclerc and I, I just don't understand, um, and obviously looking from the outside in, why you just wouldn't make that 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 public declaration, or even internally that you know, it just seems logical that Charles would be the the choice for you know head or number one driver at that team rather than Carlos Sainz. And nothing to take away from Carlos, but I mean. I don't know it, it's it's an interesting situation to watch because I feel like that conversation isn't going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think the reason that maybe that that conversation isn't more prevalent in the F one community right now is simply because Ferrari just seems so uncompetitive. I think I think if if they were fighting for podium, and of course, to be fair, Charles Leclerc did lose a podium in Bahrain because of. Uh, some electrical system issues, but I mean, I think if they were much more competitive, then I, I think that conversation would probably be more dominant. But I do very much agree that it, it's beneficial for drivers to understand their role within a team. And Sergio has always understood his role, and Valtteri Bottas always understood his role. And I think sometimes when it's left undefined and the drivers are left to race, you end up with scenarios like 2016 where Toto Wolf was pulling his hair out because he seemingly couldn't control the on-track conduct between Nico Rosberg and, and Lewis Hamilton. And they were so far ahead of the rest of the grid last that year that they could afford multiple DNFs when the drivers were coming together because there was so much delta between them and everyone else. But I, I just I think it's really beneficial to have that. And I think it is problematic that that Ferrari does it, but I don't know how quickly Frederick Vasseur is going to. And again, maybe they say it internally, but you know what? Outwardly to the public eye, it's it's pretty clear that 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 conversation hasn't happened yet. 
Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to Red Bull, I mean, the the only reason why they're so dead even in the championship after two races is that Max had that drive shaft failure in qualifying totally, in Saudi totally. Arabia. I think that un, under normal circumstances, those lights go green in Jeddah and Max just disappears and he leads the team home in a 1-2. It's just that, uh, you know, he started further back in the field. He had to fight his way up. And I think over the long term, I, I, I have... You know, I can see them bringing home a pile of points again this year, like they did last year, and that we've seen in the past with like a Mercedes doing with either Lewis and Nico or Lewis and, and Valtteri. But I, I just don't see it getting to the point at Red Bull where that in, unless. I mean, I mean, could you really see like Max having like a run of races where he's scoring little or no points and then Sergio's the one leading the championship? I mean, in, in any normal situation, I mean, Max is always going to get the benefit of the calls. This is Max's team. I mean, that, that's the whole reason why Daniel Ricciardo left the team in 2018. He saw the writing on the wall that this was a team that was focused around Max. It was being built around the Max. They were designing, building cars specifically for 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 backs for Stappen and I guess uh, obviously Danny Ricardo felt lost in that shadow felt like a little bit of um, uh, of a of an afterthought and you know it kind of makes you wonder if he had a little bit of regret afterwards and uh, we we can't talk about this I did see that uh, you know some comments that Ricardo figures that the signs are pointing towards a return to the grid in 2024 so who knows but um yeah, I mean, th- th- this is this is Max's team. This is Max's championship to to go out and take. I mean, I would say it's his championship to lose at this point, uh, because that would you know suggest that uh, that there's somebody or something that uh, that could challenge him for that. And I just think that you know all things remaining the same, that that it's you know. Max, this is your objective is to become a triple world champion. Go out there and get the job done. You've got the car, you got the team around you. And um, you know, I, I just feel that those comments made by Sergio, plus kind of like coupled with the comments Max made at the end of Brasilia last year, I kind of felt like Sergio had kind of been, you know, reminded of his place within the team. What, yeah, what do you think, I, Mark? I very much agree with that. Very, very much agree with that. And I like that comment that you made a couple of minutes ago about 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 Sergio having possibly been sat down to make sure that he balanced his comments and they were compatible <laughs> with the with the public facing Red Bull narrative. But uh, and one of my friends said as well that he was actually handed a script that he read from when he was making those comments because they seemed very, very similar to <laughs> yeah, maybe. very, very, very similar to to Max. Before we go, um, I just want to make sure that we add a new segment to sure. our race reviews. So somebody actually mentioned this on the spaces earlier tonight, but we should run down because it started with the 2022 season. Season, uh, Formula One has this concept called show and tell on Thursdays. So the teams are supposed to roll out their cars for that weekend after they've been assembled, and they're supposed to document to the press what the changes are. And I think it would be useful if we quickly just run down every weekend what upgrades or changes teams are bringing. So I don't know if, if I should do this now or save it for a little bit later. No, let's do yeah. it right now. This is perfect time so to Williams talk about it. Williams is bringing an update to their front wing, but this is a track or circuit specific change that we won't see again. They're also bringing a rear wing end plate update that is designed to be a, perf- per- a sort of a permanent fixture to the car and is based on providing um, additional performance. 
Alpha Tauri is bringing a ton of changes. The floor body is being updated due to or for the intention of increasing performance. Their floor fences are being updated to drive additional incremental performance. Their floor edge is being enhanced for additional performance. And they've updated their diffuser against for performance and to increase local load. So lots of changes happening with Alpha Tauri. Uh, as we go down the list, we've got an update from Alpine. Alpine will be updating their Halo uh, again for performance for flow conditioning. If we look at McLaren, they're going to be updating their Coke, their engine cover. This is a circuit-specific change that we probably won't see again, and they're updating their diffuser. And again, this is a permanent change that is designed to increase performance over the long term. So lots of updates coming, nothing drastic, but you're starting to see those slow incremental changes start to flow out. So AlphaTauri has a boatload of changes, McLaren has a couple, uh, Mercedes or uh, Williams has a couple. Some of them are track specific because certainly some aerodynamic setups aren't optimal for different types of tracks at elevations and aggregate and things like that. But it looks like some of these teams are starting to now in a serious way, start to roll out some... uh, major, I shouldn't say major, but some moderate performance updates that will hopefully improve performance. But those are the updates. And then just kind of as a reminder as well, Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, and Lando Norris are already on their second internal combustion engine of the year. And the reason I mentioned that is you can (laughs) only have three before you start to encounter penalties, which of course are those uh, unwanted grid penalties. And then finally, Charles Leclerc is also on his second MGUH. Lando Norris is on his second MGUH. Lando Norris is also on his second MGUK, his second energy store, and his second exhaust. So Lando Norris is just rifling through parts without having been able to cash in on any point so far this championship. Yeah, and it's been a, a pretty tough run for Lando the first two races of the year. I mean, he had those problems in in Bahrain, and then just right at the back of the pack on uh, you know during the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix two weeks ago. But just to kind of going back to what we can see, so as, as you mentioned, Mark, this is a medium downforce track. It's also the track where Pirelli is going to bring their C two, C three, and C four compound tires. So that's basically the the mid range, the C four being the softest uh, of the three compounds that they're they're bringing uh, this weekend. The C Four. Uh, some of the stats for uh, Albert Park is as follows. Um, it is a, where is it? A 5.28 kilometer, 3.28 mile long circuit. Race length is just a touch over 306 kilometers or 190.2 miles. It's 58 laps long and pole position last year was set by uh, Charles Leclerc. His time was a 117.868. The podium last year was Charles Leclerc, Sergio Perez, and George Russell. Charles set the fastest lap at 120.26, which I believe is also the lap record there. I have to go and check. Um, The winningest driver there is Michael Schumacher. And since the Australian Grand Prix was first held in 1928, Ferrari have won there uh, 13 times. So there you go. Um, What are you feeling in terms of a podium? I'm going Max Sergio. And for some reason, I'm really, really, really liking George Russell to get on the podium. I I don't know why. I just feel like... I, I feel like George is going to have a good weekend, but maybe that's just me. So we're, we've, we can kind of <laughs> cheat a little bit right now because as we're recording this free practice oh, okay. two is, is just wrapping up and, and certainly Alonzo hasn't looked bad. So my guess would be, like you said, it's going to be a Red Bull one, two, and hopefully 
maybe not. Like hopefully there's some rain or something that kind of mixes up the order, but I, I think it would be a well-deserved one, two, four for Red Bull, Max and uh, Sergio in that order. And I would expect to see Alonso on the podium uh, again. And he's also exceptional in the wet. So if it does happen to be a wet Grand Prix this weekend, then he will probably do it. And then I think the other question is, Mark, do you remember what year was it that Mercedes had that string of one-two finishes, that like incredible string of one-two finishes? Was it 2019, 2020? 2019, I think. I, I think it was, yeah. I mean that that they were kind of really untouchable was, at that time, right? Because, I just pulled it up. So they finished yeah, one, two. It, for it the was first a- one, two, three, four, five races of the season, and you gotta wonder can can Red Bull break that? Can they go six? Can they tie it? And and I think that will be interesting to watch as well because they're already halfway there at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, we've seen, especially towards the the end of last year, well, basically all of last year, except for the first couple of races when they had some mechanical issues, right? <laughs> that they've just been so quick, but also so reliable. And that's why in, in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago, it was really quite weird that Max had that drive shaft failure because, I mean, by and large, I mean, the cars have been not only quick, but they've also been very, very reliable. And, and that was, you know, out of everything, that was a bit of a strange mechanical failure you don't see that happen very very often right it tends to be something like a like a power unit or a transmission or you know hydraulics or electric so i mean to, to have a drive shaft which is obviously a component that gets a, a lot of wear and tear a lot of stress on it we don't see that uh, happen uh, more often but i i would think that they're going to you know, remain unchallenged at least uh, for for the time being. I mean, we've seen a lot of teams as you just uh, you ran down that list of some of the parts and upgrades that they're going to bring. Whether or not those are going to make uh, huge changes remains to be seen. But that that that's the thing. I mean, the other teams might be able to make some gains here and there, but uh, I, I think that Red Bull will just keep them at uh, at arm's length because look, the car looks good, the drivers are looking good as well, and. Um, you know, I, I think they're they're pretty comfortable leading the way, as they have done for you know pretty much uh, well all of 2022 and and so far two races in 2023. But I don't know why I, I'm just feeling that uh, that um, George is going to end up on the podium this weekend. So who knows? Take it for what it's worth. It may or may not be something. Certainly, um, I have a, a very very poor history when it comes to that's my gut feeling and go with it. That's money in the bank because certainly, usually ninety nine times out of a hundred, I'm wrong. But uh, I don't know. I think that uh, that I think George wants to make his mark. Obviously, they all do. But um, I don't know. He had the podium last year. Maybe that's why I'm feeling for him this weekend. But uh, we'll we'll know. Ask ask me again in two days, Hammy. Anyways, I don't have anything else to add. I think that we, uh, we've we uh, pretty much run through everything here. So uh, thank you very much for downloading and listening to the show. I'm going to lift uh, let Hammy off the hook here. So if you enjoy the show, enjoy what you, we do here, please, please, please head on over to the podcast platform of your choice, be it Apple, Spotify, whatever, uh, wherever that uh, you're able to leave a rating review. That's the quickest and easiest way to help support us. And um, if you want to get in touch, send us a tweet tweet to scooteryf1pod at gmail.com or sorry that's scooteryf1pod if you want to send us an email scooteryf1pod at gmail.com and uh, mark you've got the the spaces chats up and running again uh, which uh, which is always a uh, good fun on twitter 
And uh, well, we're going to sit back now and jump in the time machine, sort of, kind of, really, but not really. It's always kind of cool to go to Australia and places in Asia because that means for us, we can stay up late on a Saturday night and watch it and enjoy it before, you know, without having to get up uh, super early on a Sunday morning to watch a race live. So I'm looking forward to that. Anyways, on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you so much for listening to the show. And we'll talk to you again on Sunday night to wrap up the Australian Grand Prix. Until then, take uh, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.